Eric Roberts is a fucking man He's the greatest fucking actor since acting began We should give him every medal, every trophy and award He's the greatest fucking actor that you've ever seen or ever heard Gong, get it on. It's episode number 82 of Eric Roberts is the fucking man, the world's most seductive Eric Roberts related podcast. I'm Doug Tilly and joining me as usual is the nature boy, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Woo! <laughs> I'm pretty good. How are you, Doug? What was that all about, Liam? Why, why are you making these these strange noises at the beginning of our beloved podcast? I don't know. I thought I was doing the right thing, but you don't seem excited about it. So Liam, good. it's September. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Fuck, yeah, fuck. What? Oh my gosh, boy. You know, a lot of people our age, Liam, we look forward to September because, you know, the kids go back to school and all of that sort of some such nonsense. My my kid's too young for that shit. Yeah, but one day, Liam, you'll be pushing her off, you know, you'll be taking pictures as she's uh, holding on to her lunch pail and heading off to school. Isn't that, that's an exciting thought, it must be. I thought I've talked about my depressing view of the seasons on this podcast before. Do you want me to go into it again? Absolutely not, but we can <laughs> replay an older segment. No, I, now you don't like fall, even though it is really the greatest of all seasons. Well, it's not that I um, have an issue with fall. And uh-huh. if I lived somewhere that didn't have a winter, uh-huh. I'm sure I'd be okay with fall. But the reality is that fall is pre-winter, and winter is hell on earth. So I can't be stoked on fall as much as I would like to be, even though, technically speaking, Halloween is my favorite holiday. So I should be stoked on fall. But the reality is Halloween is the most thematically appropriate because it's a celebration of death just before actual death, which is winter. Why don't you, Liam, when when the snow starts to fall, you take your family and you go to Puerto Rico. Okay, first of all, that's racist. Second Uh of all. What? Second of all, Uh I don't have money to go to the fucking shore. I haven't been down. This is the other problem with me with fall. I love summer, and I don't do enough summer shit when it's summer. So, like, I haven't been down the shore. I've barely barbecued. I haven't been in a fucking pool. Like, I'm screwing summer up, and it's September, and that makes me sad. Of course, with global warming, summer will go far into September, so I still have time. Okay, okay. Liam? Liam? Yes, yes. Shut up. Shut up. Uh, Shut up, Liam. All right. Today's guest is a film and television critic. You can find his work at RogerEbert.com, The Hollywood Reporter, Vanity Fair, and The New York Times. He recently co-authored the Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone book. You can find that on Amazon right now. Why don't you take a purchase? I guess I'll put that in the show notes for a link. It's Simon Abrams. How you doing, Simon? Oh, not too bad. How are you? Great. I'm doing so well, Simon, because it is September. And unlike Liam, I've heard that you're a big fan of September. Oh, it's 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 uh, <laughs> it's a nice way to, to get uh, out of summer. Put it that way, I mean. Uh, it's it's also just that for me, I, I, I'm looking forward to it because uh, we're pretty much – I'm already working on October uh, articles, and that means I'm already looking forward to, to Halloween. And unlike a lot of people who are like, oh, no, I can't stand uh, people who are already looking forward to Halloween and just ready to get rid of summer. It's like, well, I, I kind of have to for work, so I, it's actually <laughs> pretty gratifying for me. Now, you're a prolific – Movie and television critic Simon Abrams. Oh, geez. 
Uh huh. So, <laughs> but that, what you just mentioned, I thought I thought found that very interesting. Which is, how far ahead are you usually writing? Is it this? So right now we're just beginning September, and you're mm-hmm. thinking to the end of October. Is that usually how far ahead you have to pitch these things? It depends on the type of article. Um, I mean, for reviews, for example, for the Village Voice, those reviews had to be done um, about a week and a half. Uh, before release date because we ran on newspaper schedules right uh, right up until the end and uh, with Ebert the reviews have to be in about mm, I'd say about four or five days business days before the film's release um, sometimes they when they have all media screenings or uh, press screenings that are the week of release, mm-hmm. it has to be even faster, like the night of. You have to just turn it around, and uh, those have gotten harder for me. But a lot of features, for example, or interviews, I've gotten into the um, the habit lately of, of just getting a little ahead of the curve. So I've been working on one piece for um, that's due at the end of September, and I've been working on that for the last month. Um, that one was an oral history piece, and I just needed I needed to give myself that amount of time. And because this is for a magazine and it's due for the January issue, I have Goodness. to I have to be like even further ahead of that. But um, there's another piece that I'm doing that's for, I guess, mid-October. And I really should start. Uh, it's another oral history, actually. Um, but I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that it's a, for the upcoming uh, Halloween sequel. Oh, I see. So there's there's a that has to start getting the ball in motion just because this is for a bunch of people, not all of whom are necessarily you know reached through one publicist. So I have to just weed through IMDb Pro and start getting the ball rolling and saying, well, well he's involved. Can you maybe make some time, etc. So it really it depends on how ambitious the project is and how far ahead of the punch I need to stay in front of some people because I don't want to be like the last person to be like, hey, would you want this article for <laughs> for this movie? And they're like, well, we already had like six guys. Right. Back, so. right. That, I mean, that makes total sense. So I mean, I have a question that I've always wondered, and maybe I even asked a few critics this previously. Now, often you will be watching a movie that will not be released for until some point in the future, whether it be on a festival or some other context. And uh, sometimes you actually are told that you're not allowed to publish your feelings about that movie until yeah. a specific set date. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, the, the embargo, boy. boy. Now, and I know that the embargo is something that a lot of people have difficulty with, and certainly when people break embargoes, there's a lot of controversy around that. But I'm curious, Simon, when you see... A movie, and you're very, very, very excited about it because it was so good. And then you have this embargo holding you back. Do you think that's counterproductive for the studios? Do you think that actually works against them because you can't have that groundswell of positive opinion? Um, I mean, the whole game is basically rigged after a certain point. So, like, for example, when Jurassic World and a bunch of these studio products are coming out uh, in Europe about two, three weeks before they come out here. Sure. Those re- those embargoes are stepped up strategically so that um, the screenings are at the same time as the embargo. So really, it doesn't. The embargo is always going to be beholden to when the screenings are being held, and those are always 
you know, the strat- maximum strategy for the studio. So it depends on how big the movie is, I guess I want to say. If it's a small movie and they've got, like, an embargo, that'll more likely hurt it. Mm. If it's a big uh, studio picture, um, it's probably a moot point just because it's like, what can what can one person's knock against Jurassic World 2 do realistically unless you're like, I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess we, we don't have a Roger type figure anymore, do we? We do. We have Simon Abrams. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> we do. I mean, look at all these publications that you write for, including RogerEbert.com. I think people do respect what your opinion is on it and maybe not on a national basis as of yet. But I mean, I think it, the, the time is right for a voice to rise out of the <laughs> of the rabble, let's say, and that could be you. Uh, yeah, it, it it could be. It, yeah, yeah. There you go, Simon. <laughs> this is a podcast about the actor Eric Roberts. Now, um, yes. this is this is a privileged position we Liam and I are in today because often what we find when asking a guest to be on Eric Roberts is the fucking man is that their first response is. Who is Eric Roberts? Well, that is not going to be a problem today because you're a fancy film and TV critic. You must be intimately familiar with the life and career of actor Eric Roberts. You know, I actually, you know, and periodically when I'm looking through uh, IMDb and I'm looking to see what actors or what who's in a particular project I'm stuck reviewing, I often look back at like the director's work. I look at whoever's involved. And it's become, as you guys are well aware, you know, it's he Eric Roberts' career has become like surpassed the Kevin Bacon rule of uh-huh. who's in what pro- that project. It's like it's it's basically like you'll just eventually you keep scrolling, you'll bump into Eric Roberts, and I find that funny because um, I I guarantee you at the end of this year I'll have reviewed at least two films or two projects that have Eric Roberts in it without realizing it. <laughs> but that's great. The little secret Eric Roberts action. And you know what? And I hate to say this because I do love Kevin Bacon, wonderful actor. And I'm glad that he had his run with the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. But the thing about Eric Roberts is that he's even better at it, not only because of his productivity, uh, mm-hmm. if that's a word, but also because he's working all over the world. You can find him in a Canadian movie. You might find him in a Nollywood movie. And yes, that actually is something that he's done recently. He, You can yeah. find him in world cinema. And because right. of that... How great we can tie everyone together. It's a rich tapestry. It's very exciting. But now, I, Simon, I do have to ask you, mm-hmm. what's your favorite Eric Roberts performance? Um, it'd probably have to be something boring that, like, everyone has <laughs> mentioned on your show. Like, I mean, Star 80 is kind of is kind of the, the classic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I always enjoy, it's always a, a pleasure to, to hear his voice in... Uh, cartoons that i occasionally watch uh because i'm a 31 year old man and uh that's what we do now now simon you have a book that people can purchase right now about guillermo del toro's the devil's backbone what's this book all about should we be buying this book is this a book that people should own no it's terrible oh Oh, boy no no it's i mean yeah if if you're interested in the film it's uh or even in the movies of guillermo del toro it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty fun because it's a pretty wide-ranging uh, book. In that, a lot of it is my co-author Matt Zoller Seitz's 
conversation with Guillermo about um, a lot of things, particularly relating to Guillermo's outlook on filmmaking, mm -hmm. about this film in particular, but also about, um, you know, symbols in films, about uh, genre movies. You know, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty broad conversation. And periodically, I will jump in with like a sidebar interview. And, you know, Matt and I uh, pretty meticulously edited this thing so that these sidebars would pop up in such a way that it's like, it's almost like in Starship Troopers where it's like, would you like to know more? Like, <laughs> you, have that. you have that right there. And uh, we, we, the way that we broke it up so that it wasn't just like a very monotonous read is I came up with the idea that a lot of my interviews, I would completely take my questions out of it. And I would take out even the the stuff we would obviously take out the stuff where they were the, the supplementary interview subjects repeat what Guillermo said. Sure, of course. So it's basically it reads like a cute a back and forth between Matt and uh, Guillermo, and then whenever someone else jumps in, it's almost like we made it seem as if it was like a long statement that they put out, and uh, I think that turned out better that way because. Um, too much of that back and forth would just seem kind of samey and sure. not that interesting. But it also complemented the way that the uh, the art that we used uh, is sort of used uh, as sort of annotations to the to the conversation. The whole thing is uh, to supplement that one main conversation, and I think it turned out pretty well because um, it's the conversation encompasses so much. Um, that I think the goal, the real meaning or the real message of the book is to show the collaborative nature of uh, Guillermo's movies. Like he's, he's mm -hmm. obviously got a vision. It's just that you don't get to that vision without the help of, uh, you know, the actors, composers right. like Javier Navarrete or Salver, Sarah Bilbatua and all these, these great collaborators who uh, a lot of people still probably are unaware of. So, Absolutely. It was it was a fun project, and I, I I think people would 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 dig it if they if they enjoy that uh, the shape of water and want to know more about uh, his films or how if if they've seen any of his other movies. Liam O'Donnell, now you are renowned in film circles for your distaste for the work of Guillermo del Toro. Uh, <laughs> you can't stop talking about how much you dislike his work. But I'm curious, Liam, you are my co-host on this program. And of course, I'm just having a little bit of fun with you. What are your top three Guillermo del Toro movies? <clears throat> yeah, just do it. Just just hawk that loogie right into your microphone. Thank you Sorry. so much. Sorry. You can always edit that out. Come on. Get <laughs> yeah. better at editing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're good at this, you could. Uh, You're just trying to buy yourself time because you, <laughs> you can't well, remember all the all movies. Right, so no, no, yeah, because I'm, my immediate thought is to say Devil's Backbone and Chrono. Oh come on! <laughs> but then it's like, ooh, <sighs> yeah, no, my my three favorite are like the three most obvious ones because then it's Pan's Labyrinth as well because <sighs> coward. I mean, okay, well, <laughs> what, what, what are you gonna say that's so different? Uh, first, of course, is Blade 2. Um, I, I'm just not a huge Blade 2. Now, you me. don't like Hellboy 2, is that correct, Liam? You I hate actually, You hate Hellboy 2. I don't hate it, but I don't like it. Well, I like Hellboy 2 a lot, so I probably would have that on my list. And Mimic, there we go. Top three. Yeah, Mimic. 
<laughs> Usually, Liam, you follow that up with a statement as opposed to just a loud declaration. I mean, uh, I believe the question was implied in my tone of voice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's put it this way. We covered Mimic on Hard Business, and I just tweeted that I didn't think Mimic was as bad as people say. Sure. And I got nothing but hate tweets for mm-hmm. two days. Mm-hmm. Well, oh I don't God. I don't like that Guillermo del Toro when he's directing movies that are all spooky. Liam, I don't like his spooky stuff. I get a little scared watching those movies. What do you think about that? Uh, I like Mimic a lot. I do think it's underrated. I don't think it's one of my favorite of his. Simon, back to you for a second. Now, I think it would be unfair to ask you to rank the works of Guillermo del Toro, considering that you worked on a a book about a specific one of his works. What do you think is his most underloved movie? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, You'll notice that on any interview subject doesn't have a prepared answer. They say that's a good question. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's a really good question. It's um, all right. You know what? You could even mumble for a while, and I'll cut it down to make it feel like you just had it right on the edge of your uh, brain. Sure. Uh, I mean, honestly, I think that you know the director's cut of Mimic is quite decent. Um, sure. I, I like it. Um, but I, hmm, I really think that despite the attention that it's gotten, I think Hellboy is still pretty underrated because – the first Hellboy to me is really uh, this great synthesis of his style and Mike Mignola's stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just it comes together in this way that I think very few uh, superhero films or comic book adaptations do just because it just feels like they were so in sync. They didn't really need to do much. And there's not a lot of hand holding in it. There's, it just, it feels like it's a very, um, I don't want to say pure because that sounds really obnoxious, but it just feels like a really <laughs> distilled version of like a lot of his ideas without the self seriousness and without a lot of like the statement stuff that he sometimes does. Like it just feels really, uh, for him, um, I mean, relaxed is the wrong word, but you know, it just, it feels kind of, like a great a great entry point for him and the more i rewatch it the more i'm just like this is kind of you know one of my if not my favorite of his just because it, it feels really uh authentic as weird as that sounds he sounds like the hardest working director in show business while eric roberts is the hardest working actor in show business <laughs> which will be reinforced by all the latest eric roberts news on the roberts report It's the Roberts Report for episode number 82 of Eric Roberts is the fucking man. And as per usual, we start with a deep dive on the man himself's Twitter feed. You can follow Eric Roberts on Twitter at Eric Roberts, all one word. Some sad news in the Eric Roberts verse over the past couple of weeks. Uh, This is a tweet from Eric Roberts on August 24th. Had the most amazing time on Celebrity Wife Swap with the marvelous Robin Leach. Loving thoughts from our family participants, Morgan Simons, Pie Bake Shop, and Keaton Simons. Uh, this was a in reference to the recent passing away of uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous host, Robin Leach. Uh, Liam, you might recall that Robin Leach and Eric Roberts, they swapped wives, uh, not in just regular life, on a television show, in a reality show called Celebrity Wife Swap. Uh, I, can't, I actually can't remember, Liam. You weren't actually a co-host back then, is that correct? 
That is correct. I've never have you, seen it. You've never seen that episode. It actually might be the most... I'm hesitant to say this, but it might have been the most revealing look at the life of Eric Roberts that I've seen in any of his reality show appearances. Uh, and we'll get to another one of those in just a little bit. Robin Leach, Liam, what do you think about Robin Leach? Now that you you haven't seen the show, but certainly you have some thoughts on the man. He had a very distinctive voice. Sure. Uh-huh. So you must have strong feelings about the life of Robin Leach. No, nothing. I got nothing. Well... Lucky, luckily for you, Liam, we have a movie and television critic yeah. who must <laughs> must have some particularly strong feeling. Look, I, I just want to actually pull back a little bit. I am not making light of the work or life of Robin Leach. Uh, I did grow up watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and did you? I did. I watched many an episode, and I've and as I've already uh, iterated, I, I very much enjoyed this celebrity wife swap episode, but I just don't feel like I have the words to do the man justice. So turning to Simon Abrams, our guest today. Oh, Simon, a eulogy, please, for Mr. <laughs> Robin Leach. Tribute. A touching wow. tribute. Mm-hmm. That's that's no, no pressure. Um, no, not at all. Um, I mean, I remember this guy as just basically being, like, probably the ultimate example of this type of school of um, really a personality more than a celebrity that would kind of just uh, exemplify. I think he perfectly exemplified the, the type of uh, tabloid journalism that kind of was required of TV hosts. And uh, he would always struck me as being, you know, putting on these, <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to disparage any <laughs> of his fans, but there was always like this, this weird unseemly need to, to put on these airs of, of classiness absolutely that I think was also very much, you know, a TV thing. It was very much a personality thing. So I think that that was really representative, good and bad of a, of a trend that only got, uh, if anything, uh, less classy with time. And, you know, it, you can sort of paint the, uh, uh, line indirect though it may be from, from his school of, uh, uh, MCing basically mm-hmm. to uh, Cribs and TMZ and sure. a lot of stuff that came after that. And I just think it's funny because I remember looking at an obituary or two of him and uh, the photos that they used were, you know, him tellingly uh, trying to show off the how much fun he's having and mm-hmm. abroad. And I think he had some drink in hand and I was like, what the hell is he drinking? And it just, it, for me, it was always really funny that he just seemed, uh, he seemed like he was never really having fun. Like, he always seemed like he was, he was trying to convey that he was having fun. Sure. It's just that I, I never, like, as soon as that camera turned off, I could always just see him pulling across the clown, just spitting out whatever he's drinking. He's like, <laughs> God, this pastis is shit. What are you doing? Like, I just, I can't, I can't imagine the man. I mean, I'm sure he, he he enjoyed himself in his way. It's just he just he never really seemed that into it. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm looking at it from a very limited perspective. Sure, I'm not, of course. I'm not I'm not I'm not looking at it holistically. And uh, I just I just remember from these uh, every time I he, the guy came up. Not that it was that often, but 
you always just seem kind of pained. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it did seem like, especially at a certain point, certainly when Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was no longer on TV, that it was it was an affectation, right? That the idea yeah. that he has to represent a certain style of wealth and a certain style of excess. And I think that that could wear on just about anybody. But be yeah. that as it may, uh, and again, we are not trying to paint the ultimate picture on Robin Leach. We do wish him champagne wishes and caviar dreams, don't we, Liam? Whatever. <laughs> on August 30th, Eric Roberts tweeted, Don't be alarmed. Just relaxing in at Mama Liza Roberts' purse. And he has a picture of uh, what appears to be a cat asleep in a purse, Liam. Now, Liam, you are a cat lover. I know that of you. What do you think about this cat here? Which one of his cats? Is this uh, Stevie or Wonder? <laughs> uh, what was the other one? Brooklyn? Brooklyn! <laughs> it could be Brooklyn. <laughs> Simon, you might be surprised to hear that we know the names of Eric Roberts' cats, but he and Eliza appeared on an episode of My Cat from Hell, another reality television show. What do you think about that? Yeah, my dad is actually really into that show. but um, Sure. It's it's funny because uh, I can never watch that program. I could never do it just because when I was growing up, I was the most anxious. I mean, I'm still pretty anxious, but mm -hmm. I I could never. Anytime my cat would go up a tree or try to have to be forced to have a bath, I would be adding or go to the vet. Like I would always be really just as stressed out as the cat. And so, like the my dad or my sister. Whoever would be doing the actual work of bathing the cat or taking the cat from the tree, like they'd always be even more stressed because of me, because like the cat would be crying and then I would be crying and then my sister would be yelling at me and then my dad would be like, <laughs> get down from the tree, cat. And it just like it, I never helped because just hearing that poor cat crying, I'd be like, oh, no, it's so unhappy. This is terrible. Like and it's every time I watch the damn show. It's like, oh, that cat is so unhappy. Like, I can't, uh, I can't do this. It's like you know those those videos the dodo does with those. Mm -hmm. Like oh, this yes. cat, oh, this yeah. cat was stuck in a drain and it almost had its head torn off, but then it got rescued and now it lives a happy life. I could never get that far. Like it's that first fifteen thirty seconds of like this cat was dying of emphysema and now it's 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 like I can't I can't do this. I just I I really. I have come so many times from from tweeting angrily and, you know, like George Costanza about, you know, these things should have trigger warnings. Sure. But that's that's how sensitive I am to this. Stuff. I can't I can't do it. Liam, I don't know if you've ever seen the videos on YouTube from an organization called Hope for Pause. Do you know what I'm talking about? here? Oh, oh, yes. And those are the ultimate example of what Simon is referring to there, where you see horribly mistreated dogs, usually I'm hope for pause so dogs in this case uh that that sometimes are seriously injured and then you see them you know be brought and and nursed back to uh some variation of health and then mm -hmm. at the end it, the the animals either get adopted or are up for adoption and they are presented as very happy stories but i have to be honest i'm right there with simon i find the first like five ten minutes of these actually a majority in this case of these videos to be very disturbing i, I maybe it's because i feel so close to my own animals liam what do you think about that I mean, uh, personally, I think you're both weak and uh -huh, uh -huh, shall be crushed. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, no, no, no. I get, I actually 100% understand what you're saying. For me, the ending is always enough. I'm right. more bummed out by the Dodo videos because sometimes those are like, this wild animal actually loves a human. And I'm always like, cool, so that's another animal that won't actually survive in the wild. 
good work. Oh human. God, what a punk! You're so punk, Liam. No, you're such a I just punk. think those. I think those videos are bullshit. Like, no, you're right. You are I absolutely think, right. I think with the injured dog, that's a real ass thing. This is an animal that is being mal- mistreated, and then it's revived. I it's taught a sad. hippopotamus to live in my living room. Yes, yeah, all of those videos, it. every single one of those videos where it's like an animal that should be wild and dangerous actually loves someone. I'm like, uh-huh. fuck this video. Like, I just think that is not how we should be thinking of those animals. I guess if it's a cr- cute thing like a raccoon or something, you know what I mean? Like, sure. okay. But they'll have ones about fucking lions and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's not cool. Like, that lion should kill you. Like, I just think yeah. I'm I'm okay with wild predators being predators and mm-hmm. not being like, no, they should be our friends too. It's like, no, they shouldn't be our fucking friends. We all, we, we all saw Grizzly Man. We know how that's going to end, right, Liam? Well, I mean, that's not what's in the Dodo video. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, a few years down the road. This is some exciting news. Uh, I think everyone's going to be excited to hear this. This is one of the things that you only get if you're friends with David Dakota on Facebook. He just recently tweeted, just in the last couple of days, I should say, posted, not tweeted. Just wrapped The Wrong Teacher, starring Jessica Morris, Jason Shane Scott, Vivica A. Fox, Eric Roberts, D. Wallace, Dominique Swain, Hillary Shepard, Lisa London, and many more. Great cast and crew, exclamation point. So much fun, exclamation point. Liam, this would seem to be another film in the Wrong series that David Dakota does for the Lifetime Network. What was the other movie that we watched? The Wrong, Liam? Roommates. We watched The Wrong Roommate. Was there also another one? I think there was. I think there was. I just can't remember what it is. And those films often star Eric Roberts, but they're not uh, necessarily sequels to one another. Vivica A. Fox and Eric Roberts, Liam, back together again. You must be excited about that. I I mean, I'm excited for Vivica A. Fox to get work. So, yeah, I'm stoked. Simon Abrams, (laughs) movie and TV critic. You must be familiar with the work of David Dakota. Yeah, it's. I'm trying to remember what it was that I was just looking at. That he directed, it was something. It was something. It I, was DB Cooper meets Bigfoot. <laughs> that has to be what it was. N- I mean, oh. I have. I'm not gonna say I haven't been looking at that, but I would say that it was something, something from his 80s work, something mm-hmm. er- of his early stuff. Was it Doctor Alien? No. Was it, it was... Sorority Babes in the Slime Hall? Yes. Rama? <laughs> that was it. That was it. That was it. You got it. That was because it was on the Joe Bob Briggs last drive-in. That's right. Uh, and uh, I was just, I was like, oh yeah, I didn't know that was one of his. And uh, I think there was also something else, but something in my Amazon Prime. But let's let's go with uh, <laughs> Slimeball Rama. <laughs> <laughs> Over at the respectable publication, the DailyMail.co.uk, there's an article called "Bonfire of the Vanities: A Shark Attack Near Starvation Blazing Rouse." James Cracknell, Joe Wood, and Martin Kemp say there's no place for egos on TV's most extreme survival show. Now, this is about Liam and Simon, a uh, reality show that it's hard to tell. I've been looking up and I'm trying to work out when the start date was. I believe it has just started. This is called Celebrity Island, hosted by survivalist Bear Grylls, where they take celebrities and, as the name would suggest, put them on an island for some sort of survival-type deal. Uh, I'm yet to uh, track down any of the episodes, but, of course, we will cover them. Liam, why is that? Uh, Blood Oath. We made a blood oath to watch the life and work of actor Eric Roberts. And this is an article about some of the things that occurred on Celebrity Island. And (laughs) so I don't know who any of these people are. Uh, Who's Joe Wood? Liam, do you know who Joe Wood is? No idea. 
Okay, well, Joe Wood is 63. She's the oldest woman yet to appear on the show. This is directly from the article. She fell in love with sleeping under the stars and waking up to the crashing of waves. It was like being at the beginning of time or as if we'd been plonked on a strange planet, she says. But the best thing about it was the people. They were all good people. All except one. Liam, who do you think the one is? It's got to be Eric Roberts. Enter Eric Roberts, who was, it appears, the Marmite character all shows like this seem to have. It's This is an unbelievable thing to hear because Eric is a very laid back character in all context, as we have witnessed. Uh, Liam and Simon, on the article, right above it on the screen in front of you, there is an image featuring all of these celebrities that were on the island. It does feature Eric Roberts near the center wearing a hat. Simon, what do you think of this picture of Eric Roberts? Um, it's, it's pretty ravishing. It's, uh, it's not bad. It's pretty good. But can you see him as the Marmite character that this article suggests? <laughs> I, I don't even know what that means. What? I'm going to be honest. <laughs> now, now, Marmite is a delicious yeasty, uh, uh, spread, I guess you would call it, that, uh, those in, uh, in Europe and Australia, they, they love their, their, uh, Marmite. Isn't that correct, Liam? Um, I hear it's really gross. Yeah, well, you know what? That's just your opinion. Martin calls Eric Roberts very New York and says you had to learn to take him with a pinch of salt. Uh, this is Martin is someone else who's on the show. But Joe wasn't convinced. I knew he was going to be trouble from the beginning, she confides. When Montana went to kiss him, he said, you're invading my space. And I thought, oh, no, here we go. He was like that with everyone. Sounds like Eric Roberts was making waves on Celebrity Island. Simon, are you going to check it? Oh, Can please, we talk yes. about this picture, though? Yeah, I, I actually tried to just moments ago. I don't know if you recall. Well, I mean, but I mean, it uh-huh. looks like Eric Roberts is a lost, scared old man. Yes, it, does. it, it, is, a, it is an unfortunate looking who just happens to wander like even the other person who looks roughly older, like the other people who look a little older. They're standing like they know someone's taking a picture of them and they would like to be perceived positively. <laughs> And Eric Roberts is like, I'm waiting for someone to drive me to the center. He looks like, like someone desperately not wanting to be recognized as Eric Roberts. Yeah, it's a really awkward picture. It, he looks very out of place. I just don't understand. Well, well, we will understand, I'm sure, further, Liam, when we check out Celebrity Island. Now, recently added to the ever-expanding Eric Roberts filmography is the sci-fi movie Great Land. Directed by Dana Zia Shiva. I'm going to go with that. Also director of a movie called Defenders of Life. And yes, I did check. It is not a pro-life movie. <laughs> which, which is all I only say because we've had issues on this before. Starring uh, the wonderful Bill Oberst Jr. as a philanthropist. And Eric Roberts is the wonderfully named Alpha Alt- Altruist. So Alpha Altruist is his fucking name in the movie. Uh, I couldn't find anything on the IMDb or elsewhere about the plot, but I did find this little blurb. In April 2018, Dana has completed production of her second feature film entitled Great Land, shot entirely on location in Los Angeles with a 50-strong crew. Great Land is a crazy ride into the modern-day American mindset. Uh, see, Simon... Would you watch a movie that's a crazy ride into the modern day American mindset? Listen, man, I've I've reviewed. It's always finding me because every time people do these, you know, what's the best film of the year? What's the worst? Or usually, what's the worst film you've seen this year? Um, and they always like trot out like shit that gets nominated for Razzies. Sure. I always, as a professional critic that who gets up subjected 
to stuff that nobody except the filmmakers and their loved ones have seen. Uh-huh. I guarantee you, I will put just the mildest film of the worst that I've seen in here against any of these films. I hear you. And I so, like, I, I, if I can go for, like, I, I, I try not to think about what the worst is because it's usually just something that, like, as soon as I mention it, a Google alert will go off. And uh, they'll just be like, how could you not? How did you see that movie? And it's like, well, your movie is terrible. That's why you made a terrible movie and you should be ashamed. And that's that's why I said it, because I, I want you to feel bad. I but still, yeah. Uh, yeah, please. I mean, I, I guess for I, I, I would base I would watch it. I mean, I've seen a bunch of crud this year already. So hey, it's, now it's, you don't know if it's crud. It's called Greatland. It's, it could be. And yeah, it, it sounds like a great Thomas Pynchon knockoff. Greatland. <laughs> Over to you, Liam. Liam, will you check out Great Land? I mean, you know I will, Doug. Why is that again? The blood oath. We made a blood oath. You know, uh, I spent years in the no-budget uh, gutters, Liam, watching a lot of no-budget movies uh, directed for oh, no I'm money. Aware. And and yeah. I loved – oh, I, sorry if I've been bringing it up too often, Liam. I don't mean to bother you. But I, I did watch a <laughs> lot of movies at that time. And I have to say, I watched them because I love to see sparks of inspiration – in filmmakers who were dealing with, you know, very low or non-existent budgets and making films in their backyard and stuff like that. But the worst of those movies, when I hear people say, like, you know, some big budget blockbuster was like, that's the worst movie of the year. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. I, like, we have, and we've on this show too, Liam. You know it's true. And I'm sure Simon can, can back this up. The worst movies of the year are things that you can barely classify as movies. Like, yeah. like I mean, they, they, it gets so much worse than something that could even ever make it to theaters but we, we understand why people rank these kind of things and it's more i guess um it gets more hits to put a list of movies which are more well known but we know how bad it can get liam how bad can it get i mean dark moon rising is there you go bad, mm-hmm. that's or, a good one uh, was after school special that was or... offensive and bad yeah and um, those are yeah. just eric roberts movies yeah i mean yeah the eric roberts movies we cover can sometimes be Next level, just unbelievable, awful. Now, I do want to switch gears slightly. We need to take our first break in just a moment. The movie we're going to be talking about on this episode of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man is um, one that I've been holding on to for a while. Uh, And the reason is that we needed the proper guest, Simon Abrams, to cover it uh, with the, the certain, you know, this is a movie that deserves a certain level of dignity, which some of the guests previously, not a criticism, might not have been able to bring to the subject matter. The movie is It's My Party from the year 1996, directed by Randall Kleiser. And we will talk about that in some detail. I'm sure people who've seen it already know why I made, I'm making the statement up, up front. I just want to make it clear. Uh, it's probably the tone that we've we've been enjoying so far in this episode we're going to treat this material a little more seriously as we go through it and i hope you'll understand why we're going to take our first break and when we return 1996's it's my party But I 
My Party chronicles a two-day party hosted by Nick Stark, played by Eric Roberts, a gay architect who, having been diagnosed with PML, will fall into a state of mental lapse lasting for months until his death. He decides to host a party for his friends and family, at the end of which he will commit suicide by taking Secondal. Now, this is uh, from 1996. It's My Party, directed by Randall Kleiser, also the director of Grease. The Blue Lagoon, uh, an 80s favorite of mine, Liam, Flight of the Navigator, as well as an 80s not favorite of mine, Big Top Peewee, though I'm sure Simon has strong feelings about that movie as well. Also written by Randall Kleiser. And in fact, uh, the story that it chronicles here is actually based on something that Randall Kleiser experienced himself uh, with a, his longtime partner uh, and and was based on uh, these these real life incidents that occurred in 1992. Now this movie came out in 1996. It is fairly star studded. A lot of familiar faces in this movie. I'm sure we'll get to those as we start discussing it. But uh, as I mentioned before the break, this is a very serious movie. It is treating the subject matter of uh, AIDS, which we should mention that of course the uh, PML, the lesions that Eric Roberts character is, is experiencing on his brain is, uh, is as a result of him having AIDS. Um, the idea of death with dignity, uh, the idea of, you know, being able to surround yourself with loved ones before death and being able to choose when that time comes. A lot of controversial subject matter here. It's a movie that has received, I think, uh, mixed response. But I remember at the time it was actually fairly positive. This was a few years after uh, Tom Hanks' performance in Philadelphia, kind of uh, a mainstream look at uh, the devastation of AIDS that, that certainly was very effective at that time period. But I'm curious to talk about this movie from the perspective of 2018. What are its limitations? What are some of its positives? But before we get into some of those details, I want to start with our guest today, Simon Abrams. Simon, what did you think of It's My Party? You know, I thought it was actually not bad for what it was. It's just that, um, like you said, we're looking at it from the perspective of modern... You know, the, the most we're, we're looking at it from from, you know, a distance of about 20 years. And it's just funny to me because, you know, Angels in America just got off the latest revival on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And we've got so many pieces of art even before this, like, you know, just look at Boys in the Band and sure uh, in the 70s. And there's just a lot of stuff that like it's hard to to be completely comfortable applauding it for. Um, just strictly for its the way that it advanced the cultural conversation. I would say, however, that the way that it dealt with its subject matter of, um, you know, just the idea, like you said, of dying with dignity and the way that there had to be within the gay subculture a necessary hard look and re at the reality of, uh, living with AIDS, which was the idea that your friends, your loved ones, they'll they'll die, and you have to sort of get get uh, used to the idea that as a community, that is that is a, a part of life, and it just keeps it will keep happening because at that moment in time, there's nothing that can be done. It's it's just it's a it's a horrible reality, and I think what was 
I think handled with mostly with with uh, enough sensitivity that it made the movie uh, not only palatable but kind of uh, I guess effective was the way that they they kept dealing with this uh, issue as something that the characters are not gonna or refuse to to break down about. There's a lot of uh, sentimentality there. Uh, but it's kind of held often in check. There's just there's a lot of charged emotion similarly, but it's it's kind of held together in for the most part. And there's there's also a lot of stereotypes, but they're mostly, with some exceptions, dealt with with enough sensitivity that I kind of got through it thinking like, oh, this was this was actually this was fine. Simon, big top peewee underrated i think so i think honestly especially given the recent uh outings that paul rubens has done with the character Mm -hmm. who really honestly should have been retired uh probably uh a while ago um but i was not a big fan of the the broadway revival Mm. i reviewed that i reviewed the hbo taping of it um I think that was kind of a step back. I did like the most recent Netflix film, mm-hmm. but the things that they do that they that he and Randall Kleiser and those guys did with Big Chop Pee Wee, um, it didn't really feel as out of step as I think people at the time thought, or even today think, because the idea of treating Pee Wee Herman as somebody who, you know, grows up enough to actually have a tentative interesting girls that was always in the 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 tv show that was they were were creeping towards that and uh i think it's because the most successful version of the character will always be big adventure and uh as much as i love the tv show so much uh especially the christmas special which is just you can't touch that um (laughs) i do think that big top peewee gets a lot right and uh it's just that he's dealing with he's letting his freak flag fly a little higher in that one <laughs> than he did in a uh, big adventure, which was such a, I mean, he's even said in, in interviews that that was really a traditional story written with the, the Sid field right. guy to screenplay writing and big top. He, we just feels like he had a lot of exploitation and regional genre cinema in the back of his head. And he's kind of letting it, letting it all hang out a little more in that one. And I appreciate that. It's, it doesn't, it's doesn't completely, it's not a very uh, tight movie, but I, I like how um, personal and, and just how, um, I mean, it just, it's, it feels genuinely weird in ways that I think is, is very, is perfect for that character. Liam, your thoughts on 1996's it's my party. And if you want to throw in some thoughts on big top, you can do that as well. I don't have any strong thoughts on Big Top Pee Wee, though uh, I noticed you left off Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, which I saw in the theater. Not a fan. (laughs) I I believe I saw it twice in the theater, uh, but I haven't tried to watch it since then, so I probably wouldn't like it anymore. But at the time, I thought it was good fun. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So, yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know why, but it had not occurred to me that 
this was based off of uh, Randall Kleiser's real life experience, right. uh, even though the character is clearly a director. So it should have. And I guess I, I guess it did occur to me a little bit, but I just didn't do the research to find out if that was true or not. The, the character in this movie played by Gregory Harrison is the director. Sorry, I just wanted to make yeah, sure that was yeah, clear. Right, right, right. And and Eric Roberts' character, who's sort of uh, the focus of the story, is uh, an architect. And um, that affects a little bit of how I thought of the movie in a not surprising way, because I actually felt like the part of the film that wasn't working for me the most was their sort of reconciliation moment uh, or storyline that the, everything around Eric Roberts's character gathering people was working for me in a very sort of powerful way and making me think of people I know who were sick and uh, what would they have done if they had been in a similar situation. And it just was very emotionally resonant, even if I didn't, necessarily like all the there's you know there's comedic beats in the film and some of them work and some of them don't and that's where some of that stuff just didn't connect with me but uh their story it it didn't uh, something about it didn't feel authentic or something and the fact that it's real actually makes me think that's partly why in that i wonder if it's too close to him sure it felt sentimental in a way that the rest of the film, I mean, take, for example, the memory of them going to their friend's house who's attempted suicide and it doesn't work. That is not a sentimental story. Sure. Like that is a story that is like, this is the reality. And if you think this is gross, well, guess what? We're living in a, in a fucking plague and genocide. Like this is a post genocidal film. Like we just need to fucking name that, that the eighties was Ronald Reagan's genocide against gay people and his refusal to, to deal with AIDS. And, and because he thought it only affected gay people and really wasn't even interested in doing anything about it until it was clear that that was not the case. And so this is a film about that. This is a film in a real strong way about a community that has been decimated by a fucking plague. And so, you, you know, death's head humor is actually goddamn appropriate and it's right. And, and if you're watching it and you're offended, good, because that means you're not in touch with the reality of millions of people. But their relationship is, to me, very sentimentally dealt with. Not their breakup, which is harsh and, you know, whatever. And they don't get into it enough. It's sort of the prologue of the film. But it's like that sort of set me up to think like, OK, we're going to be we're going to be in a world that tells the truth. And some of the ways that they kind of reconcile in the movie, it just didn't feel as truthful to me as other parts of the movie. Now, that doesn't say the whole movie is like a raw, open nerve. There's, again, some comedic parts that feel almost sitcom-y, and uh, I don't think all the snappy dialogue works, but the parts that are emotional mostly kill it, and really their their stuff only clicks for me at the very end because the end of the movie is, for me personally, emotionally perfect, which is crazy because a lot of the movie is sort of uh, back and forth between things that really work and things that like I think were a little rough. But the last part of the film, the way the film sort of wraps up, is so powerful for me, at least the way I viewed it, sure. that it kind of it kind of 
made me forgive all the raw edges of the rest of the film. Even the part where like I thought just the sound design of the movie was poorly done at times where it was like getting on my nerves. I don't care. The end just got me. I cried. I was like, this movie's great. Like I was like totally <laughs> on board because yeah. it like la- it stuck the landing so hard. I forgave a lot of stuff that just didn't really didn't really work for me. I'm going to pull back the curtains a little bit on how the process of me watching this movie occurred, which is that uh, currently my mother is visiting from Newfoundland uh, and she doesn't get up to where I live in Ontario very often. And because of a uh, comedy of errors, she ended up at our uh, my wife and I, uh, our apartment this afternoon and ended up watching this movie with me Uh, now. Needless to say, my mother doesn't have any interest in Eric Roberts or podcasts or particularly an Eric Roberts related podcast. And she doesn't watch a lot of movies either. Uh, This movie is something she found very emotionally affecting, Uh, particularly it brought to mind uh, my father's death and and her experience with that. And I was not entirely surprised when watching it that it could have that sort of of uh, broader emotion uh, and broader memories kind of sparked by what you're watching here, even though the context of this movie is something very specific and, again, based in reality. But, you know, it it was hard to see my mother so emotionally moved by something, and honestly myself as well, particularly by the ending, like you mentioned, uh, Liam, and not, you know, and, and not have that affect how I see the movie afterwards. So I'm very, you know, it's why I'm so interested in seeing how other people viewed it as well. But one thing I really did want to talk about regarding the movie is... Something that that might be seen as slightly controversial from the perspective of 2018, which is that Eric Roberts and uh, Gregory Harrison are really the stars of this movie, even though it has a very large and recognizable cast. But these are our two main characters. We have Eric Roberts, of course, who is planning after this party to commit suicide. Uh, and that we have Gregory Harrison as this director, and they had a long relationship that uh, broke up in a very kind of controversial way. And this is them kind of reconciling. It's sort of the, the surrounding story, as you said, Liam. It, it 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 maybe hits a few wrong notes, but these are actors who are straight playing gay characters, and in fact, uh, the, a lot of the supporting characters who are meant to be gay are played by straight actors. And I'm just wanted to get both of your takes on whether you felt that that was distracting, whether you felt some of them were camping it up maybe a little too much. Certainly we have Bronson Pinchot in the cast here, kind of renowned <laughs> for his gay stereotyping in Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, maybe I, I, I don't have any particularly strong feelings one way or the other regarding that performance, but he's here playing a variation on that performance. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that could be seen as as offensive. Uh, and But you also have... Gay actors in the supporting cast. You have recognizable gay actors like Roddy McDowell shows up at one point in this movie. Um, and it's it's interesting to see how that plays out, that the leads are allowed to be straight actors while the supporting characters are allowed to be gay actors and what that, that represents. So I'm actually going to start with you, Liam. Uh, just go back to you for a second. Were you distracted by that at all? Is that something you were thinking about while watching it? It, w- it both was and it wasn't. It was in the sense of... I went in kind of knowing that was probably true. And so I kept thinking who were some of the actors that I think maybe uh, could have done that instead. On the other hand, it didn't bother me in the sense of like, because I knew that was going to be the case. I was kind of prepared for it. So I wasn't like, why is this? Why? You know what I mean? and, And it's different a little bit when you're watching an older film, not because I want to forgive the past of things that I think were a bad idea, but because um, 
it's too late to change it in a sense. Like sure. when I hear about a new movie coming out, it's like, why'd they cast those people? You know what I mean? Like someone, especially like right now we hear about it even more with like trans performances. Sure. There's Absolutely. all these cis people trying to do trans performances and it's like, but there are trans actors and, and they want those roles with a movie like this. I'm sure it's also true that there were uh gay or queer or whatever people want to, you know, identify as that, could have been in those roles but it's so long ago it's hard for me to be like i'm gonna punish this movie retroactively it's a little easier to sort of take it as it is um but it is sort of a sad testament i think of where we were at that even with a film whose creator is uh a a gay man telling his story that for whatever reason we need straight actors i mean maybe the reason is you know, sort of the most crass one, which is like, you know, Eric Roberts still had a name at this point, right? Like a name that brought attention and money. So maybe in a sense, it didn't even occur to him not to cast someone like Eric Roberts wants to be in it. Sure. Yeah. Great. You know what I mean? Like it it might not have even been on the table to cast somebody else, which isn't necessarily to say it's not wrong, but to more say like to me that that's sad, that that was you know, sort of where we're at and I hope we're not up there anymore, but it, we kind of are right. And a lot of mm-hmm. movies we're, we're going to go with the name and uh, there are more luckily uh, recognized LGBTQ uh, actors now, but not as, not as many as probably there should be. So yeah, I was thinking about it, but it wasn't like huge on my list. I, the Bronson Pinchot thing didn't bother me probably as much as it could have because the character has this like weird rough new york accent and it sort of um off plays some of what could be seen as like very kind of an effeminate performance is that he also has this rough accent and it it sort of kept it from going as off the wall as maybe beverly hills cop is but um i i did like that there were a few different you know what i mean like not all the characters were an effeminate stereotype which which could be an issue and it's hard because um, you know, it, it would be different again. This is why to me this is an issue. It would be different if the cast really was uh people who were gay and, and then they could just play it however they felt like they were playing it. It's because they're straight that now in 2018 we're like, well, that's kind of fucked up. Like, why are they doing it that way or why'd they make this choice? So it really does sort of complicate some of those performance issues. Also, I didn't know that many of that uh performers in the film who were gay other than Ryan McDowell but the other one I knew who is at least queer is Margaret Cho who's playing a straight right. woman so yeah, that was that's... that was also a weird moment to be like <laughs> oh man this is back when Margaret Cho was Margaret Cho and not queer Margaret Cho and so you know what I mean like there's I, I, I just 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 to add to one of your points there Liam I wonder if performances by straight actors uh playing trans characters like Eddie Redmayne in the Danish Girl or uh, Jared Leto and Dallas Buyers Club, if those are going to age like the performances here do. And I, I actually, there's a yeah. part of me that feels like it's very likely that that is the case. Uh, and I, 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 it, I'll give you an opportunity to add on to what you had to say in a second, but I do want to turn over to Simon. Simon, just to, to reiterate the question, which is that, you know, were you distracted by the idea that we have a lot of um, straight actors playing gay characters here? I wouldn't say I was distracted by that. I was more distracted by the actual performances, which I think is related to your directly related to your Mm -hmm. question, because I think um, the real reason for wanting 
gay actors to play gay characters, trans actors to play trans characters, is because they bring a level of authenticity of experience that I think, you know, translates directly onto the screen. I mean, your question about whether the Eddie Redmaynes and the uh, Jared Leto type performances of today will date in the same way, of course, they already have. I mean, the responses are immediate because I think people realize and they see the performances as being inauthentic and more to the point they're just they it's that's distracting you know watching a a, a person go through mannerisms that aren't uh either natural to them or they don't they don't have a level of experience that makes them seem uh sympathetic or recognizable to the viewer as anything other than uh, an attempt to get inside the head of a character that this actor simply can't get into. Um, you know, that is, I think that is, it's what we're looking at with it's my party because sure. I think Bronson Pinchot's character his or let me rephrase Bronson Pinchot's performance. I hated, I hated it. And it wasn't, it wasn't, that it was cartoonish like it was in Beverly Hills Cop. It was that it was just immediately grating as this very clownish kind of performance. And, um, you know, partly that's because it's reliant on stereotypes, the idea of the jealous Mary, the idea of the character who's going to just sort of insert himself and defend Eric Roberts's character. It was all very cliched and, um, musty but it wasn't offensive because it was more um you could tell that they were well-meaning enough i would say that um eric roberts's performance funnily enough um was similar in some ways in that to me it just struck me that he was really leaning hard on these affectations and tics to try to show um, that there was truth maybe to the stereotypes about the effeminate gay male. and But right. however, that through dialogue and through the circumstances of the film, the character sort of transcends those. It's just that it felt like he was deliberately going out of his way to sort of bullishly start from the premise that okay here's a character who is and does act like a stereotypical gay male but i think that that is kind of um the wrong way to go about a character or performance or a subject like this because it just it feels wrong to assume that there is such a thing as a universally gay male behavior and i i could totally see why uh a viewer would be offended i would would we we should take not not to interrupt you this simon but i think we at least have to take into account that that though the character of nick stark that eric roberts is playing isn't a real person it is based on a real person who theoretically he would be trying to imitate in some way but of course i guess in some way that reinforces what you just said right which is that you might lean too heavily on these effeminate affectations when you're trying, even in the, 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 the case of trying to imitate a real life person. 
Yes. I, I think honestly, for me, it's, it's hard to, um, I mean, it was like, for example, this is really, uh, it's not the same thing, but it's similar in that I reviewed, um, this dreadful movie with, uh, Pierce Brosnan and I complained about his Irish accent in the film and I got a commenter, a couple commenters who were like, how could you have a terrible Irish accent? He's actually Irish. And they made it seem as if it was this big gotcha moment. And I was like, yeah, but unfortunately, he's really pouring it on thick. And you haven't seen the film, so you don't know that. The thing of it is, if he were just to speak in his normal accent, there'd be no complaint. It's just that he's putting on this weird burlesque version of an Irish right. accent, which is really distracting. And I think it's the same thing here. I think there's obviously a level of authenticity that Kleiser brings to this film. And I think it's what makes the movie as successful as it is. I would, however, say that Robert's performance does definitely feel like an actor who is looking from the outside at a, you know, a character that, you know, he's got certainly some of the the mannerisms and a lot of it works for this reason. I mean, the performance is not a bad or a hundred percent, you know, offensive for it's, it's got a level of authenticity and a level of, of relatability to it that makes me hesitate to criticize it. I do think it is pretty open to criticism though. I think it's, it's one of those things that as I watched it, I was very much aware of the way that, you know, he was very swishy in his mannerisms. He was very, um, his, his New York accent was kind of, uh, grating to me. It just, it, there was things about it that felt like they leaned on less, uh, like a termite art approach to what this person was like and more to these generalizations that as the movie went on, um, kind of went away. But, you know, the fact that this, the character as we know him, the foundation of the character is built on that stuff. That that was kind of that threw me a bit. Right. Moving over to you, Liam. Now, uh, I'll ask you about Eric Roberts in, in just a second uh, because we are running a little long here. I just wanted to ask you quickly: Were there any supporting performances that you thought particularly stood out to you in the movie? I just want to mention quickly: uh, Bruce Davison is in the movie just for a very brief amount of time. Uh, I read on some trivia on the Internet Movie Database that his dialogue is entirely improvised and that he was only available for a single day. Actually, I found his part kind of interesting and touching as this kind of. Um, He's supposed to be the spouse of Olivia Newton-John's character, uh, and they're uh -huh. estranged, and and he has this previous relationship where Nick Stark, Eric Roberts' character, was his best man at his wedding. I, I, I thought that, you know, considering that there's so little uh, for a lot of the supporting characters in terms of their background, I thought that worked pretty well. Were there any uh, characters that jumped out to you? I mean, honestly, that him, him and uh, sort of the interact that interaction of him with uh, Eric Roberts and then his son with Eric Roberts – that was one of the supporting aspects that kind of worked for me and sure. kind of showed that whatever. Whereas uh, the drama with Eric Roberts's character with Nick's dad, it just I don't I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be sort of a source of like pathos or humor. And they kept playing it both ways. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dad's sad. Dad's funny. Dad's sad. Dad's funny. And I'm Dad's like, no. drunk as fuck. 
yeah, like yeah. none of that, none of that fucking worked. And even their moment in the in the garage or studio or whatever it was, no, that shit didn't work. Um, I don't know, actually. I guess the the I'm trying to remember his name. Sorry, I'm looking at the list no, right okay. now. The the doctor friend who's sort of in charge. Oh of, yes, of course. I I thought he made sense, even though his his role too often maybe is just to be the the party pooper in a sense sure it, it makes sense he's the only one there really who's like completely on the line you know what i mean like everyone is there but they all have plausible de- deniability and he has helped plan this thing he has all the medical knowledge to make it happen he knows how they need to handle it like there's just so much there and it's so interesting to me the way that plays out in the story because like not all the characters take him very seriously. They kind of treat him as like, um, I don't know, like a like like a like a lame babysitter or something. You know what I mean? But it's I just I just felt like that character has so much riding on his fucking shoulders. Sure, right. I felt myself feeling so much for him. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, I mean, it's, I'm not saying that because everyone was bad, but I, I, you know. There weren't a lot of performances I thought were amazing. Um, and I was kind of sad because I'm a pretty big Margaret Cho fan. And she's listed pretty high on a lot of <laughs> the things of the movie. And she doesn't do a whole lot. She's got a couple of scenes. They're good. But uh, her characters, and again, not nothing against her. It's just her character's not given that much to do. And that that was not my favorite. Simon, just quickly over to you. Were there any uh, supporting performances that stood out to you? I would say, given the limitations of how um, they were written, I did how I like George Siegel as the dad because that kind of um, I don't know. I thought that the, the the confrontation with them he did well. I think he he did well with with the, the what he had to work with. Right. Although, I mean, the thing my thing is the the standouts for me are usually guys that I like George Siegel. Uh, and Roddy McDowell, I thought Roddy McDowell for yeah, his handful absolutely. of scenes, uh, you know, just nailed it. But I think he was he was just a uh, just a always money in the bank. I mean, mm-hmm. but uh, I thought Cho also had um, it wasn't just that it was the performance. It, I just appreciated the fact that um, her character was harassed constantly by George Siegel's dad and was constantly just like you're drunk, get away from me. Sure. And it, and it, it, it winded up being like, you're drunk, stop hitting on me. And I think that I'm just extrapolating here, but I, I wonder if she brought that to the character sure. because that seems like a very, that seems like something a woman would bring to the role because it's like, you know what, in this environment, I would probably be, I would probably be the subject of, I think she, I think she, she knew she brought some that, that that level of sensitivity. It did seem like yeah. the, the direction allowed these actors to be very loose, uh, and that th- they were allowed mm-hmm. to. I mean, certainly that story about uh, about the improvisation on set, it, and and the fact that it, so much of it is a party, and some of it was shot in real places that these uh, events occurred. That that there's a, a, a an ability for these actors to bring elements like that uh, to it, and I could see what you're saying, Simon. Absolutely. Uh, just just back to you, Liam. Since Simon has already given his thoughts, basically on Eric Roberts and his performance. What were your thoughts on Eric Roberts' performance here? Do you feel uh, the same as Simon, that that maybe the affectations were a little heavy at times? 
Well, I mean, I kind of thought they would be. We've we've seen other things less serious <laughs> where <Have> Eric <laughs> Roberts, where Eric Roberts is trying to uh, portray uh, a gay character, and it's awkward, yeah, um, swishy. This was not quite that, but uh, I could see the the feeling that um, he does kind of rely on those. It, it's I I don't know I, my thought was simply that there's a number of emotionally difficult parts of the film that I felt he handled pretty well. And that might've been exacerbated by the fact that I don't love the actor who he was, was his love interest. Um, uh, Harrison. Yeah. I don't, I, I just didn't, I didn't really particularly love his performance. And so um, there are parts where I felt like, there was more work being done by Eric Roberts to make a scene work than um, by him. But uh, on the other hand, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I think it is true. It's just hard because I want to uh, defend his performance in some ways, because <laughs> sure. like I said, the, there's parts that I think really stand out for me, but Oh man, he, he is so, he just can't, and and again, it's I'm not trying to say it's as offensive as after school special for people who've seen that. Um, he's not there, but it's not good. It's not good. And I gotta say that like, if someone was like, I can't watch this because of what Eric Roberts is doing, I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. Like I get that. It's it's a little too it's a little too much at times. And um, I, I, it didn't distract me. Like I said, there are parts that really work for me about this film. And, and I think that a lot of that involves Eric Roberts, but, uh, but it's not great. I, I don't disagree with either of what both of you are saying. Uh, I do, I do want to bring up something that Simon alluded to, which is the fact that this performance, I believe gets stronger as the movie goes along. Uh, mm-hmm. and as more depth is added to his character and as more of those relationships come into play. Um, yeah. Sometimes his interactions with, with people, it, it kind of backslides and it turns into those stereotypes that we're so familiar with. But I do think, and this is something you've alluded to, Liam, once you hit that final 20 minutes or so, that that's a strong performance. And I think that a lot of those um, more unpleasant elements go away. And when it's more of a focus just on these familial relationships and the end of his life and, and sort of these sweeter moments, uh, I find, I, I think it's, a, I think it's very good. And I also think it's very affecting. Um, and I think that there's a real sincerity to the filmmaking on display too. This is obviously a story that uh, Randall Kleiser really wants to tell and he wants to tell it with dignity and he wants to tell it with respect. And I think that does come through. So whatever limitations this movie has, uh, I still think that it's it's very worthwhile. But it's also very much a time capsule of that time period, not just of uh, in terms of the subject matter that it's presenting, but also of how that that kind of subject matter was presented in film. And though it may be dated, I still think it's kind of important to return to that every once in a while. This is... Believe it or not, this was probably a lot of people's first experience with this, you know, right to die, death with dignity type subject matter. And uh, it certainly could have gotten gotten a lot worse than this. But that does bring us to something a little lighter on this show, which is the question of whether Eric Roberts is the fucking man, respectfully, in 1996's It's My Party. Going to start with you, Liam. I know you've had some mixed feelings about this performance. Is Eric Roberts the fucking man in this movie? I, I, so... I I'm going to say yes, <laughs> but I hope listeners know that as a person on this show, everything is on a scale, right? Like, so is this like a star 80 performance? God, no. 
but uh but is this anything like some of the things we've watched that has made us upset no 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 i think i think there's a lot of value here i think there's some choices he makes that are not the best choices and probably represent a time and i'd hope that he would make different choices though we have evidence that he would not uh but I, I still think overall I'm I'm a fan. I think he's I think he's the man in this movie. Um though I say that with some reservation because uh you know there are parts of his performance that I'm unhappy with. Very wishy washy Eric Roberts is the fucking man from Liam this week. Over to our film critic friend Simon Abrams. <laughs> Simon is Eric Roberts the fucking man and it's the party. It's the party. I mean it's my party, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta stop introducing me as a critic. It's making me. It's making me feel a, a little. Uh, I, I, anyway, I, I won't. I shall not stop. <laughs> okay. I, I. I. Since Liam seems to be rounding up, I will round a little down and say he is not because oh. for me, it's there. There's enough here that I think I can totally, in theory, agree with what both of you are saying about the performance and its importance. And the way that, you know, if uh, weighed not only against his other performances, but weighed against wh- how the totality of the, the character, how it's realized, it's not terrible. I would not, however, say I take seriously the concept of being the fucking man. And mm-hmm. I think here, I, I, think, I, think he could, I think he would be more, he needs to be more of the fucking man to get that from, from me. So I'm going to. I'm going to be the party pooper and say he is he is not the fucking man. Party poopage or not, I get the deciding vote in this case, which I absolutely love having. And I'm just going to say Eric Roberts is the fucking man in 1996's <laughs> It's My Party. Overruled! Television Doug, and film critic Simon Doug, Abrams. Doug, have you ever said he's not the man? Has that even happened once on this show? <laughs> I believe it has happened. And in fact, Liam, if we had our dithers about us, we would go back into the archives and find out what the what the answers are in regards to whether Eric Roberts is a fucking man. I think I after said, school after school special is the only one you said was, he's not the man. I was fucking disappointed with that movie in all sorts yeah. of different ways. But I'm sure that's not my only time. But I'm just saying, Liam, I take my job seriously, just as Simon takes his, and I'm saying <laughs> Borderline or not, Eric Roberts is the fucking man in 1996's It's My Party. We're going to take our final break. When we return, uh, we're going to do a little plugging, say goodnight, and there's another thing we're going to do, Liam. What do we do in the last segment? I don't know. All right. We'll be back in just a minute. Way. 
And that was episode number 82 of Eric Roberts is the fucking man. I want to thank our guest, film and television critic Simon Abrams, <laughs> for bringing a touch of class to a very silly podcast, which should not exist. I mean, I cannot <laughs> emphasize that enough. It should not, but I'm glad it does because it allowed me to spend a little time with the wonderful Simon Abrams, very talented person. Simon, where can people find your work on the internet? Well, right now there are a couple of outlets that I have a couple pieces in the couple weeks. There's uh, The Times is actually running an interview that I did with Edward James Olmos this uh, week, and I'm really excited for that because I haven't uh, written for The Times in about two years. Sure. And uh, so this is uh, kind of exciting for me. And I think the, the conversation turned out really well. So there's that in the Times this week. Um, I generally review most of my stuff for RogerEbert.com, um, where this upcoming week I'll be reviewing the Jennifer Garner versus uh, racist stereotypes of Latino gangsters <laughs> film, uh, Peppermint. And uh, there's also, I do a bunch of stuff. I have a couple stuff, uh, a couple articles coming up at the Hollywood Reporter and uh, specifically their Heat Vision uh, section. Um, I will be uh, doing an interview with Fred Decker for the upcoming Predator film, as well as um, I'm hoping to do we're a conversation. I do these conversation pieces where me and another film critic uh, go back and forth about a movie. We just did one. Uh, me and my uh, one of my favorite writers, Stephen Boone, about Black Klansmen. And we their next one that we're doing is about Panos Cosmatos' Man. Oh. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff coming up there. Um, I'm also trying to do uh, a, a rather uh, goofy, but hopefully ambitious and worthwhile uh, piece about Nicolas Cage in time for that film too, which... Uh, I would tentatively just call uh, a unified theory of Nicolas Cage <laughs> and um, it should be fun. So there's, there's going to be some stuff there. Um, but yeah, if you, if you don't want to deal with all that hassle of, of just following outlet by outlet, uh, I post all the pieces at my Twitter. Um, but if that, even that's too much, I'm also on letterboxd and all the, uh, um, all the pieces that I do are pretty regularly updated there. Um, so letterboxd and Twitter, the handle is, uh, just the same thing. It's S I M O N S A Y B R A M S. So we will of course link both the letterboxd, uh, profile and Twitter profile in the show notes today. Thanks again so much, Simon, Liam O'Donnell, cinepunks.com, yeah. Liam O'Donnell, what you been yeah. up to? You know, I actually noticed, Liam, over in the past few days, that you have an article that you've written and put out in the world. Where on cinepunks.com can we find it? Oh, are you talking shit right now? I'm That's what talking, we're going to do? I thought That's that what we're you, gonna you do? owned and operated a site, so certainly you'd provide content to that, not someone else's site. Here's the deal, Doug. The people who supply the fucking free movie get the fucking review. That's how it <laughs> works. So if cinepunks.com had got me the latest... Uh, Blu-ray release of Cradle Will Rock, then they would have gotten the review. But as you well know, I don't get a lot of media for Cinepunks.com. So, uh, no, yeah, I don't write a lot for Synapse, uh, though that's where I started writing for before Cinepunks was a thing. But I'm still friends with everyone at the site, and I still get all the emails, and I saw that that was on a list 
Uh, although to be fair, they're sort of iffy with the Kino stuff. So like you ask for it and maybe you get it and maybe you don't. So sure. I sort of threw sure my hat. audience cares about this. Well, I threw my hat in the <laughs> ring to cover that movie and I got it. So I was like, well, now I owe Ed. And it was only like four weeks late. So that's not too bad. <laughs> well, I mean, it is a movie that everyone's talking about right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you can check that out on what's the website again? Uh, C-I-N... A-P-S-E dot C-O. And you can, of course, follow Liam's latest work on his Twitter feed, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And you should keep your eyes peeled over to Cinepunks.com because some big changes are occurring, Liam. Some big, exciting changes. Yeah, I, I think um, you're going to write a thing eventually. That's cool. <laughs> and, I'm doing uh... so much goddamn free work for you. <laughs> Uh, I know. If, I'm if I pay, if I started invoicing, I'd be bankrupting your entire family, and your daughter would have to come live with me. Holy fuck! <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay, so Jill's, Jill's <laughs> against that idea, but generally that's true. Yeah. Okay. Well, good for you, Liam. You can of course <laughs> you can find out more about Eric Roberts is the fucking man over at ericrobertsistheman.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at eritfm. You can also follow us on Facebook if you do a search for Eric Roberts is the man on Facebook. If you want to find out more about me, you can follow me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Or you can check out my other podcast, No Budget Nightmares, about micro-budget cinema over at NoBudgetPodcast.com or on Twitter at NoBudgetPodcast. All one word. But with that said, it's time to close up the Eric Roberts bag for another week. We'll be back very soon with another Eric Roberts classic. Good night, everybody. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. If there's anything that you can do, Eric Roberts fucking can. 